Thank you for that, Charlton and Lauren. Uh, song of the words written by Martin Luther, if you saw that. We went from Handel to Luther. Uh, just getting older and older. And, uh, but uh, some strong words that have uh, songs and carols uh, that continue to make an impact uh, in uh, our world uh, at every Christmas season. Matthew chapter 2. In your Bibles tonight, Matthew chapter 2. And I want to look at the last portion of the chapter. And verse uh, 19 would be a good place to start. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew takes great pains in purposely putting in four fulfillment passages, four fulfillment verses where Matthew um, picks out these verses in the narrative of the story by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament and he places them in the narrative to tell us that this is being done to fulfill these passages. The last two of the four in chapter 2 are the most difficult to, to distinguish and to connect. Um, and if you notice, these four passages are connected to locations in, uh, in the birth narrative of Jesus. Interesting, as I read this week, most people's birth only takes place in one city, only is situated with one location. All right, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, Joshua was born in Spring Valley, Illinois. Uh, my other children were born in La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. And whatever location you were born and, and you were associated. But Jesus' birth is tied to four different locations. And Matthew is, is pointing those four locations out. The very first one in chapter 2 takes place during the narrative of the Magi. When they come to Jerusalem, seeing the star in the east, they show up at Herod's palace in Jerusalem and say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And you notice they don't have the answer to that. They're not even anticipating the birth of a Messiah, but these Gentile magi are and have been studying the scriptures and the stars and connect that together, the timing of the birth of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and they come. But they have the details right, but they don't know where in Jerusalem or where in Israel he is to be born. So the scribes go back and they find the passage in the book of Malachi chapter 5 in verse 2. And they come back and read that and Matthew then is connecting that with the fulfillment that he will be born in Bethlehem just like Malachi prophesied 500 years before. 
There's the first. The second connected in this story is the passage in, um, that is connecting us to the story of Jesus in Egypt. Look at verse 14. Uh, and, uh, yeah, verse 14, actually in verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared. That's when the, sh uh, the wise men left. Joseph in a dream saying, arise and take the young child and his mother. Notice in this narrative, every time you read the, 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 the child and the mother, the child is always first, not the mother and his child, but the child and his mother. We've read that three times already in just random verses through chapter 2 that, that shows you the importance of the child before the mother, not the mother, the child, which is different. And he says, we flee into Egypt and, he, and, and thou there until I bring word for Herod will seek the child uh, to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was thus there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And that's a prophecy from Hosea 11 in verse 1. And so now Jesus is connected with Bethlehem. Now he flees from Bethlehem, Joseph in the night, and takes the child to Egypt. And now Jesus' birth narrative is connected to Egypt and the fulfillment of the prophecy that he's going to be out of Egypt. Have I called my son? The next is in verse 17. After Herod sends the soldiers to Bethlehem to slaughter the children, two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently acquired of the wise men, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah, was there a voice heard, lamentations and weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. There's the third fulfillment passage in the story of Jesus. So Jesus' birth is connected to Bethlehem. Jesus' birth is connected to Egypt. And Jesus' birth now is connected to a city called Ramah. As fulfilled in Jeremiah the prophet. And there's a whole scenario, and I think we talked about that passage uh, last Christmas, I believe, in, uh, in some deep detail about what is going on here. That is the third connection, the fulfillment prophecy. The fourth connection is seen down in verse 23. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, in the verses that I connected with you, these four passages, I want you to also notice four dreams that Joseph has. Four dreams that Joseph has in the birth narrative. Now, we got to go back to chapter 1 to notice Joseph's first dream that he experiences. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, look down in verse 20 of this chapter, Mary is expecting, she's seen Gabriel. Gabriel has told her she's going to conceive and bear a child. He's going to be... Um, uh, the Holy, Holy Spirit, a Holy Ghost is going to uh, conceive in verse 20. And, uh, and while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou art the son of David. Fear not to take thee, Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So obviously Joseph was pondering about putting his wife away. And uh, being a just man and, and a righteous man, he wants to do what is right. And he's in this, um, he's in this predicament. 
His, uh, his spouse is now expecting a child that he knows is not his. And he was afraid. And God, through the inspiration of this dream, sent an angel. And this is the first of four that Joseph will see. Now, don't think of a dream like we would think of today where, you know, you, you would do tonight or maybe you did this afternoon during your nap or, or last night where, you know, you, you just naturally, you're going to sleep and you just naturally uh, go into this state of, of dreaming where you're, you're mind, you're asleep and you're dreaming. A dream mentioned in Scripture connected with Revelation is not what we would do tonight or what you did last night. Having a nightmare, having a dream. This is a semi-conscious state where a person is in and he either meets an angel or um, it's revealed to him by revelation of God. This is something divine. This is specific. This is not just a normal dream. It's, it happened multiple times in the Old Testament. Joseph saw a dream. All right? And it was divine that was given to him. Pharaoh saw a dream. It was divine. It was given to him. The butler and the baker saw a dream that was divinely given to them. Jacob dreamed and saw a ladder and angels ascending and descending in a dream specific uh, in that place. Other characters such as Abimelech uh, had a, a dream as well as Daniel. Peter in the New Testament when he's in prison he saw a dream and gets up and then this angel that is there um, it, uh, I may be confusing that one with what he saw at Joppa when he was there and saw the table coming down with the food that was on top of that. And so there, there are often times that God would um, speak information to individuals through dreams. That doesn't happen today. I don't believe that God speaks to people through dreams. We have the closed canon of the scripture, all 66 books, all that God has written for us. So any revelation for us today in the church age is tied specifically to God's word. God doesn't speak through dreams and visions as he did or audibly as he did in the time of the Old Testament or in the early portions such as what we're reading here with Joseph. But we're going to see four of them. That was one to give him encouragement. There's another in chapter 2 and verse 13. We read that one. Um, Joseph knows now that Herod knows about uh, the birth of, of Jesus and the, life, the child's life and his mother is in danger. So he's told to flee. This word flee in the Greek is where we get our word refugee from uh, or fugitive from. To, to flee, to run away, to, to get out, to go to Egypt. Uh, because Herod is seeking to destroy the child. And so God sends Joseph a dream to, to encourage him through an angel, a dream through an angel, to depart and leave. He obeys the word of God and does that. The next time is in verse 19. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph while he was in Egypt. And said, now you can return back to Israel. All it says in this dream is just general. Go back to the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the child's life. He arose and he took, he was obedient. We don't know what the time frame is during, this, um, during the time when they arrived to Egypt. If it was several months, if it was a year, if it was, we don't know. But the, Joseph receives this dream and the angel says, return to the land of Israel. And then he receives another dream in verse 22. 
once they've entered into Israel, it seems like Joseph's full intent was to return to Bethlehem where he was from. So once he enters into the land of Israel, God now warns him in verse 22 in a dream. The angel is not connected in this verse, but I believe in some of my reading, the connection is that that the angel would have been, as the times before, revealed to him in the warning that he would turn aside and go to Galilee. Now, I say all of this, and I give you those passages of Scripture, because I I want you to look at this last dream. Oftentimes, this last dream in, in revelation to God is overlooked. We know about Joseph worrying about taking Mary as his wife and Gabriel shows up or are in this dream and, and he, he obeys the Lord. We know about the wise men come in and Herod tells him to leave or, or te- um, the angel tells him to leave because Herod... We know that. We know the story. But when we come to this one, going not to Bethlehem but to Nazareth, we, we just kind of read over the last few verses because we've come to uh, you know the, this portion of the, of the Christmas narrative and we move on. And, and open in to John the Baptist in chapter 3 in our, in our reading. But this is a very important passage. This is a very important dream. And it's, uh, it's often overlooked in the Christmas story. What about this dream that reveals to us uh, that, that some points and some truths that we can learn tonight? Number one, this is, this is teaching us God's divine protection. Number two, this is teaching us about God's divine providence, His leading. Number three, it's teaching us again about divine prophecy, the revelation of God's word. And then I believe that we can also draw at the end of this chapter God's divine provision. So let's look just in the few moments that we have at these four points. Divine protection. Can we give you a little bit of history here on what's going on? Some of you tell me after the service, you like history. Some of you get glazed-eyed and you, you go to sleep immediately when, when historical things start be names and dates and connecting different things. Those of you that are history buffs and you like some of this information, and it is important because it is part of the story, even though we may not always know what um, that part, you just got to do a little extra reading. A lot of this stuff... I've gathered through, um, you can find this information. Uh, the, some of the original sources would be Josephus itself, him, himself. A first century Jewish writer who records Roman uh, history and Greek history around the Palestine. And he is the earliest re- record. And you can actually buy his works, the writings of Josephus. I think you find them in, even in our library if you want to read some of it. Um, but it's very interested, his- interesting history. And he gives a lot of background to what is happening during the life of Christ. Josephus, I do not believe, was a, a, a believer. He did, wasn't a Christian. He was Jewish, uh, was, was arrested and taken um, by the Romans and then uh, wrote uh, that and we have his records. Herod was declared by the Roman Senate to be king of the Jews in 40 BC. He was a descendant of the Edomites and he was raised as a practicing Jew. This is Herod the Great. He moved to Rome when he was 25 years old to learn how, to, uh, how the Romans lived and learn to be supportive of Rome. He ended up leading an army to overtake Jerusalem from the Hasmoneans in about 37 B.C. This is Herod. So he became a general leading an army back to Palestine to take it away from the Hasmoneans. Where he ended up winning and setting himself up through Roman authority as king of Jerusalem. This was 27 years before Pompey defeated 
uh, Jerusalem in 50 years after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Under Caesar Augustus, or Octavian, Herod enjoyed free control of Judea. This Herod was also afraid of any threat to his power. And because of that, he was known as a very harsh, cruel, and evil man. He killed his wife, one of his wives. He killed a couple of his sons because they threatened to take his throne. He killed several other relatives just to make sure that it would not be taken from him. And he fortified it all of Israel. Uh, I think I told you on Wednesday night, um, he built Caesarea as a fortification. He even protected himself against Rome because he was afraid the Romans would also come and take his throne. So he built these palaces and these fortresses uh, all over Israel. Masada, uh, the Herodian, uh, the temple itself, Jerusalem itself was fortified as a, as a, a citadel and a castle, and then Caesarea, and he had all these places where he could go and protect himself uh, from, uh, from, from any of his enemies. In Matthew chapter 2, then we get a description of how crazy Herod was about any threat to his power. Even for a, an infant baby who possibly would have the right to the throne. What threat would, a, would an infant born in Bethlehem have to him? A lot. Especially if the Jewish people believed that he was the Messiah, King of the Jews. So this is one of the reasons why he sends his soldiers down to kill babies in Bethlehem. This shows you how cruel and evil a man Herod was. He died in 4 BC while Joseph and Mary were living in Egypt. After Herod died, his kingdom was divided up in, uh, by, to his several of his surviving sons, the ones he didn't kill. Archelaus, who's mentioned here in this passage, was given Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. Matthew chapter 2, verse 22 says that Archelaus reigned in Judea in the place of his father. Galilee and Perea were given to his other son, Herod Atipus. He's mentioned in this passage as well. On the eastern side of Israel, Herod Philip was given um, uh, con control of this area. Matthew records that Joseph was afraid. Look down in verse 22. And when he heard, this is Joseph, heard that Archelaus did reign in, in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, Joseph was afraid to go, notwithstanding, then the dream comes. The indication seems to be that Joseph was, was intending to go to either Bethlehem or Jerusalem, somewhere in Judea, to raise Jesus and, uh, and start his carpentry business. Archelaus, who took the place of Herod in 4 BC, was a very terrible man as well. He followed in his father's footsteps. When Herod fell ill, two popular teachers, Jewish teachers, Judas and Matthias, had incited their pupils into re uh, removing a golden eagle that had been placed by the Romans over the entrance of the temple. After, and Josephus records for this, um, this was a rebellion, and the threat to that, the new king faced uh, an angry ca crowd, and so he had the two martyrs killed along with 3,000 Jews. On Pentecost, or on Passover, in 4 B.C. So around 4 B.C., Archelaus put 3,000 Jews 
executed because of a riot. Um, it caused problems in Rome. So eventually Rome had Archelaus come back to Rome because of the upheaval and eventually was removed from power and uh, a man named Pontius Pilate was put in his place to rule Jerusalem and Judea. So it was during this time that Joseph was coming back to the Jerusalem area would have heard about those 3,000 Jews who had been executed by Archelaus. No wonder he was scared to take his son and his wife back. So a God appeared to him in a dream to show him what to do. The revelation of this dream was God protecting Joseph and Mary and Jesus from the threat, even still, on his life. It is amazing to me that all of this happened in history and God moves this family from, from Bethlehem to Egypt back to the Holy Land, but specifically to Galilee. And I think it's, it shows you how God w w took a, a detailed description and, and, and leadership into the life of Joseph and Mary and Jesus to protect him. Uh, because God knew that there was a threat on his life, both protecting him to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt, but also to protect him coming back to the Holy Land and going specifically to Galilee and not to Judea to protect him and, and give Joseph the peace of mind to know that God was protecting him. He needed leadership. This would go to the next stage of not just divine protection, but also divine providence. Providence is God working in the affairs of man. God's leading in Joseph and Mary's life. When you read the story, you can't help but see God's providence superintending over the affairs of the time to make sure everything is working out just like he planned. Galatians 4 and verse 4, when the fullness of time was come. That is God's providence. At the right time, the right place, in the right place of history, with the right two people, Joseph and Mary, God knew all of that would work out, and he had everything working out just specifically for his plans and purposes. Archelaus was divinely directed in his position for a reason. God put him in power. God put Herod in power. God put Archelaus in power. God put Herod Atipus in power. All of these Herods be confused. There's several other Herods. There's a Herod Agrippa, one, two, and three that shows up in Acts and, um, and, and meeting with Paul. I mean, Herod had his uh, seed all over uh, Palestine in the first century. But the indication is the fact that these leaders were not by accident put into power. God was doing that. And he was directing. God was working in the affairs of the kingdom of Judah. God did not want Jesus in Jerusalem. He did not want Jesus in Bethlehem. God wanted Jesus to be a Galilean. And so God providentially, by his protection, but also through his leadership, led Joseph and Mary to the right place. During a political turmoil, during war, during 
executions during evil people like Caesar and Herod and Atippus and Archelaus and all these different names that we don't, you know, really on our everyday really even care about. Well, what about people like Trump, Biden, and Putin, and all these Mohammeds, and, uh, and, and all these different people? We, we sometimes care about the people that you know, are, are, are situated in the politics and the military around what we're thinking of. But God, God superintends. He, he is providentially in control of our time and our space and our history, what is going on. And he's not caught off guard by who's in leadership, what mistake has made, what war is happening, what war doesn't, what peace treaty is signed. Because God is in control. Someone defined providence in this way, divine providence, is that continuous agency of God by which he makes all events of the physical and the moral universe fulfill its original design in which he had created it. Providence is God's gracious outworking of his purpose in Christ which issues his dealings with mankind. Another person says, God's standing, God's providence is God standing somewhere in the shadow, ruling and overruling. Ruling and overruling. And I think it's interesting that God cares about your life as well. Where you go for Christmas, where you go for your job, where you move, what house you buy, those are all in the plans of God. His thoughts, His ways. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you. I know the thoughts that I have for you. And we know that every step of a good man is ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. God cares about the decisions you make in your life. God cares about where you go and what you do, what you buy and what you don't buy. Those decisions matter to him. And we have free will. To obey the scripture or reject the scripture. Joseph had, a, had, had free will to obey the dream and the direction of God and the moving of God or, or reject the moving of God and the direction of God. Joseph was obedient, but God was directing and his hand was in everything. God directs through his providence. I believe that if we would... If we would Look at, out and, and see how God is directing in our life the, the, uh, his, his direction and His providence. Where you are being sensitive to, to, um, to, to God's leading through His Word and then resting in God's providence. His protection, His providence. And then uh, look here uh, at His prophecy in verse 23. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a problem with this verse. Nowhere in the Bible, it's not a problem with this verse, it's a problem with our understanding of this verse. Let me say it that way. Nowhere in the Bible is this verse found, this prophecy found. This is not, there's not a passage that you can flip through like you can the other three. You can't flip through a passage necessarily and, and find where he's going to be called a Nazarene. Notice that it's said in the plural. The word says that it was spoken of by the prophets. Not one prophet, but multiple prophets. So, 
how, what do we do? If we can't go to a passage of Scripture that Matthew says is fulfilling, where is it? Um, we can solve this problem by simply saying, somewhere in the Old Testament, in the collection of all the prophets' verses, uh, all, the, all the verses of the prophets, we can add together some connection of prophecy. Matthew knew it, but we don't, and we just have to leave it with the Holy Spirit. And I know a lot of people say, that's just good enough with me, all right? There are some other solutions. What's going on here? John Walford states this. Matthew seems to have been summarizing the Old Testament teaching concerning the despised and rejected one. It was significant that he dwelt in a despised and a rejected place. Isaiah 53 says that he will be despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. So John Walford connects that to Isaiah 53 and the teaching of him being despised, connected with Nazareth. A writer named Smith says, Galileans were despised by the proud Judeans. Judah, Judea was the home of orthodoxy. It was the shrine of Israel's sacred institution. Hers was Jerusalem, the temple, the Sanhedrin, the great teachers. She boasted of distinctions and disdain. The boorish folk of Galilee. Galilee pe Galilean people were viewed as ignorant and what we would see today as redneck. All right? When they often visited Jerusalem for their festivals and the seasons, their manner, their dress, their accents, it was all in jest for the citizens of Jerusalem. They laughed at Galileans. Since they spoke with a strong burr, this writer says, the instant they opened their mouth, their nationality was discovered, and the confusion of the guttural sometimes uh, uh, created blunders, and therefore they were derided. Galileans. So it could be. John chapter 1 and verse 47 records from Nathan's mouth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's another solution that possibly commentaries have indicated. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23, could be a reference to Isaiah 11 and verse 1, where it talks about a branch or a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. There could be a play on the word, the word picture of this huge tree that's been cut over, cut off, and then out of that stump grows a little bitty branch, a little bitty place that grows up. The Hebrew word for branch is nezer. It is possible that Matthew may have been referring to this passage and this idea throughout the prophets. Nazareth sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for branch or shoot. Some have indicated him being called the Nazarene would be seen as the one who would branch out and be the fulfillment of David's prophecy. Some have indicated that Matthew may be stating that Jesus was a Nazarite. I don't believe that that is the case here and that has been stretched. and We can, probably, we can write that one off in the list. Uh, John MacArthur indicates that possibly from this passage that there is no record of what Matthew is saying. There are things that the prophet said that aren't recorded for us down. Uh, such as uh, in Jude, we have a record of Enoch who prophesied during his day. But we don't know what he prophesied. It wasn't written down for us. We just know he prophesied. So it could be that some of the prophets did tell us that he, or did say that he would be a Nazarene, but it's not recorded for us in the scripture. 
Well, whatever the case is, Matthew is making it to help us to understand that we can trust God's word, that God's plan was that he be a Galilean, that he probably would be connected being um, uh, from, from Galilee as a uh, despised and rejected, viewed as someone who came from an insignificant village, someone that was lowly and coming from Galilee as a person um, would oftentimes put him again despised in Jerusalem when he went there. Someone said, did you know that possibly Jesus spoke with a southern accent? Because when, they, when the Galileans came to Jerusalem, we know in the scripture that they could tell their, that where they were from based on their speech. So it could be. When Jesus spoke Hebrew, or when he spoke Greek, or when he spoke Aramaic, he talked with a draw. Can, and you know, that just messes your whole story up about your Jesus movies, doesn't it? And Jesus having a, you know, a southern accent. Maybe he you know, you know, slurred out and added a bunch of syllables to names and things like that. Because when Jesus spoke, he revealed to himself, I think, that he was Galilean. And it was out of Galilee not Jerusalem, not Rome, um, not even Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, but that was not where he was raised. That was not where he was from. That was not what he was known for. He was known as being Jesus of, not Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth. Jerome records in the 5th century that in the 5th century, Christians were known as Nazarenes. A nickname that was used to mock Christians by the enemies that they were Nazarenes. Those hillbillies from Nazareth, following that Jesus of Nazareth. That's where the word Christian came from. They were first called Christians in Berea as a, as a mocking of them. That you're those Christ followers. Why would you follow someone from Galilee? Interesting that we can, we can be honored to be called a Christian. We can be honored to be called a Nazarene or to follow an, a Nazarene such as Jesus. An honor. And then can I just mention last year divine providence as we close. Joseph was poor. We know that from Luke chapter 2 because when he went to offer uh, an offering at the temple, he bought two turtle doves. That was saved for those who were poor. This was an offering of a poor person. They didn't have a lot of money. Where did they get all the money for this trip from Bethlehem to Egypt, from Egypt back to Nazareth, and then to start up and to provide for his family during the time in Egypt itself? You see, God knew the needs of this holy family. God knew Joseph needed the provisions to be able to take care of his family in a special way as he's running from Herod. So God brought those provisions right to his doorstep, literally. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. With all their Christmas gifts lying around here on the stable floor or on this house floor, what were they going to do with that? I mean, they weren't going to put it in Jesus' college fund, right? No doubt, many scholars believe that they used those gifts 
as ways to provide for themselves for this very expensive, had to move away completely out of the country to Egypt, find work and provide for their family and then move all the way back to Nazareth. They waited on the Lord's direction and God provided everything they needed from the very prophecy and vision and dreams to the very material needs that they had to be able to provide for their family. And Joseph obeyed the Lord at every command. This shows you what type of man Joseph was to be very sensitive to the leading and the direction of the Lord and to follow the Lord and be obedient to the Lord. The exact type of father and man of God that you would need to raise the son of God while on earth. A man very sensitive to being obedient to God's word. So when we see this last dream of Joseph and from this passage he falls off the scene he's never mentioned again. Other than the connection to Jesus being the son of a carpenter. We assume that Joseph died probably while Jesus was a boy or at least young. And yet he was a man that God taught him a lesson of protection. God taught him a lesson of providence. God taught him a lesson of prophecy, fulfilling prophecy. And God taught him a lesson to, that he could always uh, rely upon God who supplies all our needs and will take care of us. Father, I pray as we close tonight. Thank you for your protection of this holy family. What a responsibility that Joseph and Mary had for Jesus to take care of him in a time of chaos and turmoil and, and hurt and evil people all the way up to the highest in, in the land seeking to destroy him and kill him. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that you love us and you protect us as well. As we think about your providence and your care and your directing, you don't speak to us through dreams. You speak to us through your word. But your providence in the shadows of the events of the affairs of history in our life, overruling and ruling in our day so that everything works out in your plan and by your will. We can trust your providence. No matter what we face at the end of this year, this Christmas season, or, the, or, or next year, we know that the good man's steps are ordered of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your, um, your prophecy that is fulfilled. And when we read these stories and these events, even though we may not be able to know all the details about them, we know that they are fulfilled just as you said, hundreds and hundreds of years before as they were prophesied, and yet down to the detail. And then also your provisions. Uh, thank you even in the, in the areas of these gifts and these directions that you provided Joseph and Mary and their needs to get to Bethlehem, from Bethlehem to Egypt, and from Egypt to Nazareth. A lot of travel that was going on during this narrative. And you provided for their needs. Uh, Lord, thank you that you provide for our needs as well. Lord, would we be obedient to your word? And um, you've given us a free will that we can, we can decide, we can choose. And Lord, would we, would we choose to be obedient to your word and to, to follow your word and to make it a part of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Uh, we have um, information here.